Hello there. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. I have a bad feeling about this. But when the President does it, that means that it is not illegal. What? Welcome to the joy of Star Wars. I'm Simon, and with me are my co-hosts, the big Stark Lighter and Porkins of Star Wars podcasts, Vaughn and Steel. Hi, guys. Hey, Simon. Wait, which one's Biggs? Which one's Porkins? Am I Porkins, <laughs> or do I got the sexy 70s moustache? I mean, you two know each other better than I do, so I'll let you two pick. Hi. Mm. Look, at that speed, do you think you'll be able to pull out in time? <laughs> <laughs> The mind boggles. Um, right, as you can tell, today is going to be a lot of fun on this uh, on this podcast, and uh, not just because Vaughn and Steele have given me a homework assignment, so you can look forward to uh, hearing about that um, a little bit later in the show. So, Vaughn, do you want to introduce today's topic to our audience? Yes, I do, Simon. So today we're going to talk about the Chosen One philosophy in Star Wars, and link that up with American exceptionalism. Um, what do you what do you two think that that kind of has in common with one another? Steel. Um, so I'm going to wait until Gracie very kindly explains American exceptionalism <laughs> before I make my call on that one. Um, relating it to things like the American dream is possible and all everything that, that entails. Mm. But as a, as a narrative point, the chosen one, um, almost cliche at this point is, uh, a well-used, well-used story beat, which, uh, most of the time I can't stand to be honest. And honestly, if I was writing the Phantom Menace, I'd leave that out of it. To be honest, I don't think, I don't think it's it's worth it. I much prefer the idea that Anakin could be anyone and like he could just be a Jedi that was good at what he did and then fell to the dark side. But that's mm. not what they did and we've got some interesting stuff out of it. So we're going to talk about that today. Mm-hmm. So I suppose for myself, um, yeah, the, the chosen one is, is obviously um, quite biblical in its... Um, maybe inception in Western um, literature. Um, I suppose when I think of it in terms of, say, how America might view itself, um, this is something that Toby and I talked quite a bit on the podcast, even before Vaughn joined um, our Impressions of America podcast, which was this idea of the shining city upon a hill and um, how America sees it. it, it it's um, sort of exceptionalism and it's... Um, almost place from place from God as, as far as um, <laughs> how it was formed and how it was going to um, take itself forward after that. Um, so um, I suppose in relation to Star Wars, I'm very much looking forward to it and this ties in with, with my homework assignment. Um, I, I, there's always talks or talk of chosen one within star wars and what that means and you know all, all subsequent memes that came out of that um it'll be interesting from for me to talk about it with you guys who know more about star wars than i do because i think one of the complaints i've had especially with the sequels has been this inability for star wars to move away from um the skywalker saga and to move um, 
sort of central characters away from being, um, you know, children of nepotism and all, all this kind of thing. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting into that further with you. And um, as I say, I'm looking forward to to Vaughn's history lesson, which will be coming up shortly. I realize now I should have just said Jesus or Donald <laughs> Trump. Oof, oof. One in the same. The other. Ah. Maybe they're both the same. I've oh, never God. seen them in the same room. That's for damn sure. You've never seen Trump in the same room as Jesus. No, that's not true. We all have a Jesus and his name is Obi-Wan Kenobi or Ewan McGregor. Fact, fact, fact. fact. One or the other. Yes. The second coming is right now, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gave us train spotting. He gave us birds of prey villain, and he's also our Lord and Savior. And he has a sick mullet in episode two. <laughs> I was going to say, we're getting a Kenobi season right after Easter. I mean, oh, Ooh. yeah. That is true. Vaughn, did, did you want to uh, comment on any of that, or did you want to swift move and move, sort of move quickly past what we were just discussing there with Jesus and. Uh, and uh, everything else related to, to Donald Trump. I'm 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 just thinking about Obi Wan now, so we should probably. Uh, yeah, we've now lost Vaughn. Yeah, Steel. Yeah. Do you have anything else yeah. you want to talk about for job. us today? I was just going to say it's a good job this is a podcast and not a visual thing because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, Vaughn. You right got now. me. You got me thinking about. This is this this podcast is slowly getting media. away from us. Um, let's let's try anyway, and refocus. Yeah. All right, history, history, yeah, history, yes. Anyway, so Obi Wan aside, um, I think those the those are both great answers um, from both of you, and we're definitely going to hit on some of those things that you've you've mentioned so far, um, and I'm going to hit on you and McGregor. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, it's so, just, sorry, just, just just take us off track again. I remember seeing a, a tweet one time from a person I follow, and um, they said that they basically stood about three feet away from you, McGregor, one point. And I think I don't know if they were at a film premiere or something like that. And they said they would literally like, kill their whole family to do it again. So um, shout out to that person, mm -hmm. and Von Summer. Did, smell... <laughs> did he smell good? I bet he did. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but yeah, we can all assume he did. I, I bet he smells like rich mahogany. Isn't that what they say about all like attractive people? Isn't that like the go-to fragrance that like rich mahogany? Yeah, they, they all smell like a different kind of wood. Sex panther. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> this, this, this is a serious podcast that does explore historical themes with <laughs> Star Wars and not just what we would like to do to Star Wars actors if given half the chance. So, Vaughn, trying to put those... I mean, it can the, be. I mean, it can be. <laughs> the horn of Star Wars. Right, Vaughn, if you can put all this to one side and steer us back into the direction of history, that'd be great. Yes. Okay. All right. So, the Chosen One mythology and American exceptionalism. Um, let's start very briefly with, with just framing the Chosen One mythology. So... In Star Wars, it is the idea that Anakin Skywalker is the chosen one. That he is the one who is going to bring balance to the Force, um, to the light and dark sides of the Force. 
more introduced in Phantom Menace um, and almost retconned into the original trilogy. Um, it's something that's also explored more fully in Clone Wars in a three season arc, a uh, season three arc um, on Mortis, which we will talk a bit more about later. Um, but it's the the idea that Qui-Gon believed Anakin to be the chosen one because his midichlorian count just off the charts. Um, and he was the product of immaculate conception, according to Shmi, his, his mother. Um, Obi-Wan in the original trilogy tries to kind of salvage this prophecy if we're going with the retconned kind of reading of the original trilogy. Um, and he believes that Luke might be the one to actually bring balance to the force um, and fix the almost kind of Vader arc. Uh, but ultimately it was Anakin who does bring quote unquote balance to the force um, by ending the lineage of the Sith, which is gets more complicated with the sequels, but that to one side, that's what the kind of prophecy is um, of the chosen one in Star Wars in a very simplified way. Now, um, American exceptionalism is the argument that the US and Americans um, have a uniqueness about them, that the American political system and values and historical development are wholly unique in human history to the American experience. Uh, this was really kind of put forth by the 20th century American sociologist, Seymour Martin Lipset. Uh, he was one of the first to kind of map the, this trajectory of American history as American exceptionalism. Uh, the French political scientist and historian, Alexis de Tocqueville, was the first writer to describe the US as exceptional. And there are some core kind of tenets to it. So one is the absence of feudalism from American history, that, that all other Western nations, um, being European nations in this kind of framework, went through a feudalist age. And all of the Western nations uh, within Europe have this history that can be dated back to Greece and Rome and it's not a manufactured history quote unquote there are of course mythologies around Greece and Rome that uh, kind of put western countries onto a trajectory that they're on so we have things like um, the Aeneid from Virgil that established the Roman Empire as a direct lineage to um, the ancient Greeks and Troy and the Homer traditions and all of that um, we have the myths of Europa being Europa and the bull um, of founding mythology for all of Europe. And the U.S. doesn't have that because the U.S. was founded via the American Revolution. Um, they were colonies of the British and, quote unquote, forged their own path. So the U.S. had to kind of invent their own mythology. And that's why we get a lot of myths about the founding fathers. So that was a, that was a bit of tangent away from this, but American exceptionalism, exceptionalism is the absence of feudalism and it has roots in Puritan and Protestant values and the quote unquote Protestant promise. So this is kind of the idea from John Winthrop, which you might be familiar with. 
um, in a sermon entitled A Model of Christian Charity, uh, Winthrop described the New World as a quote-unquote city upon a hill, which is derived from the Bible's Sermon on the Mount, and yeah, Sermon on the Mount, and he gave this sermon around 1630, either on the way to the New World or when he landed in the Massachusetts colony. This idea of city upon a hill has been something that Americans return to constantly. Um, on January 9th, 1961, JFK gave a speech referencing John Winthrop to the General Court of Massachusetts. Um, the speech is entitled The City Upon a Hill. And quoting from it, he said, quote, today the eyes of all people are truly upon us and our governments in every branch at every level, national, state, and local must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. Skipping ahead a bit, he says, quote, history will not judge our endeavors and a government cannot be selected merely on the basis of color or creed or even party affiliation. Neither will competence and loyalty and stature, while essential to the utmost, suffice in times such as these. For of those to whom much is given, much is required, end quote. Ronald Reagan would also quote John Winthrop and his idea of the kind of shining city upon a hill uh, in several addresses, including his election eve address entitled A Vision for America and his farewell address in 1980 and 1989, respectively. Um, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney in more recent years also made reference to the, quote, dream of building a city upon a hill, end quote. All of these speeches homogenize the U.S. and claim that regardless of, quote, color or creed or even party affiliation, to quote JFK again, um, Americans unite under the need to be the beacon for the world um, of freedom and democracy and all of these kind of unique American values and aspirations. Um, another tenant is the American Revolution and Republicanism that comes out of the U.S. Gordon Wood, who is a very problematic historian um, and someone I don't like, um, he has a very famous quote about American exceptionalism and the, the revolution and republicanism. And he says, quote, our beliefs in liberty, equality, constitutionalism, and the well-being of ordinary people came out of the revolutionary era. So too did our idea that we Americans are a special people with a special destiny to lead the world toward liberty and democracy, end quote. Um, we also get ideas of Jefferson, from Jefferson around the empire of liberty. So the empire of liberty is the direct responsibility of the U.S. to spread freedom across the world. Um, this is something we also come back to constantly throughout American history uh, and one of the most recognizable fixtures of American identity. Um, so many presidents have referred to the empire of liberty. So we get Thomas Jefferson doing so, and then we get James Monroe in the Monroe Doctrine. Um, and the Monroe Doctrine warned European nations that the U.S. would no longer tolerate any further colonization or puppet monarchs uh, throughout the world. 
And essentially, the Monroe Doctrine established that the new world and the old world would be and remain distinctly separate spheres of influence. That was in the State of the Union Address of 1823. Um, other presidents to, to reference it are Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, um, Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and the whole kind of philosophy of Wilsonianism. Um, FDR, Harry Truman in the Truman Doctrine, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, they've all made reference to specifically the empire of liberty uh, in their policy and their philosophies on the U.S. and its place in the world. Um, with the Truman Doctrine, we get the whole idea of the domino effect fears in the post-war era that led to the Cold War interventionism um, and later Vietnam. The domino effect is the fear that communism would just fall through the world like dominoes, that America had a responsibility to stop communism from spreading. Um, this also is the justification pretty much for imperialism and bringing the American way and American democracy throughout the world where it doesn't need to be. And absolutely should not be. Now, running concurrently with the empire of liberty are the ideas of manifest destiny and the Turner thesis. Manifest destiny is the idea that it was the American settlers divine right and entitlement to expand westward and conquer the rest of North America to be the property under control of the US government. Manifest destiny uh, was and still is the excuse Americans used to justify the dispossession and genocide against Native Americans uh, along the Western frontier. The term was created by the journalist John L. O'Sullivan, who popularized the term Manifest Destiny in 1845 as the divine right for the U.S. to annex the Republic of Texas and Oregon. Quoting him, he wrote it was, quote, our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions, end quote. The Turner thesis, or uh, alternatively known as the frontier thesis, is an argument advanced by the historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893, uh, that American democracy was formed by the American frontier. So Western expansion for Turner is where American democracy was formed and grown. Uh, he said, quote, American democracy was born of no theorist's dream, end quote, but rather it was formed on the fulfilling of the divine right of expansion. Uh, quote, it came out of the American forest and it gained new strength each time it touched a new frontier, end quote. The original speech in which the thesis was put forth is entitled The Significance of the Frontier in American History. Uh, and it was delivered to the American Historical Association in 1893 in Chicago. That speech is um, its just a treat. It is rife with misogyny and racism um, towards Native Americans specifically. And it heralds the American explorer um, this kind of cowboy mythology, the idea of rugged individualism as like the peak American quality and identity. The Turner thesis is something many American historians still reference today, um, though in far less favorable terms. Uh, 
every time we identify a new frontier, um, be it space as the final frontier or the new ideology around kind of cyberspace, we use language of conquering and the potential for the new frontier um, to create a more American identity, or rather that it may be emboldening the existent American democracy in new ways. There are many counters to American exceptionalism and brilliant histories that capture why American exceptionalism is so problematic. Uh, Richard T. Hughes, in his 2018 book, Myths America Lives By, White Supremacy and the Stories That Give Us Meaning, tracks the, the myth of American exceptionalism through the use of it to justify white supremacy. Um, and as I mentioned, with both the Turner, Turner thesis and Manifest Destiny, and uh, also with the Empire of Liberty, this is something that just makes sense, that it's it's the idea that Americans by divine right, and specifically white Americans by divine right, are expected to conquer other peoples and land and build their own empire of liberty. Um, Jeffrey Hodgson in his book, The Myth of American Exceptionalism from 2010, um, he argues that America is not as exceptional as it would like to think. Um, quoting from the, the publisher's description of the book, its blindness to its own history has bred a complacent nationalism and a disastrous foreign policy that has isolated and alienated it from the global community, end quote. So Hodgson really argues that the use of the mythology around American exceptionalism has been corrupted, especially in recent decades. Um, that's particularly brought out with his um, analyses of Reagan and how Reagan uses the city upon a hill and um, all other kinds of America is so unique and America is the... The, the shining beacon for the rest of the world, that this is, this is a really dangerous kind of philosophy. Um, and he says that, that in believing this, Americans are doing a detriment to themselves and also the global community by not acknowledging how both their actions affect the wider world and also that other people are also capable of wonderful, exceptional things. So we have this great, rich, storied history of American exceptionalism and American identity, um, and also the critiques against it, that I think fit very closely with the, the prophecy of the Chosen One in Star Wars. It's a troubling mythology that can result in the aggrandizing of the self and the separation of the self from a wider community. While Anakin doesn't necessarily know that he is the Chosen One, and that so many people believe him to be the chosen one. He embodies both sides of this American exceptionalism. He is poised for greatness, but also corruptible. Um, he believes himself to be special and it causes his descent into becoming um, a Sith. And his belief that he is creating a new, his new empire. The U.S., I think, um, can very much be read as a parallel to Anakin. 
both in World War II and in Vietnam, um, especially with the prequels for World War II. And what I mean by that is that when the U.S. entered World War II, it was because the U.S. thought that there was a need for American intervention. Um, and yes, we were not interested in World War II until the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And yes, the U.S. was keen to use World War II um, as an economic stimulus for war profiteering. And it did. But I think there was an aggrandizing moment in World War II when the U.S. truly poised itself as the savior of the world and kind of rested its laurels on the fact that FDR first targeted Germany and not Japan, even though Japan are the, is the one that bombed the U.S., and I'm not defending the U.S. in any way. Um, I am saying that the U.S. perceived itself as the one to restore balance, as almost the chosen one. In this kind of stupendous display, the U.S. committed atrocities, uh, the most grievous of which were the dropping of the atomic bombs. And since World War II, there have been many perpetrated mythologies of the necessity of those bombings and the painted mythology in US schools that the US were the only ones at D-Day, that the US were the heroes of World War II. Um, that's something I genuinely learned in American public schools. And it wasn't corrected until college when I was a history major that the US were not the only ones at D-Day. Similarly, Anakin thought he was doing the, what was best for everyone and for the galaxy. Um, in a moment of, of kind of deranged thinking, sure. And throughout the prequels and Clone Wars, especially, Anakin feels the pressures of being, as he thought, the only one who could do anything. Um, the mental pressures of his need to fix things, to save his mother, to save Padme, led to his destruction as a character and to his belief that he was doing the right thing in establishing peace, freedom, justice, and security in his new empire. Uh, much akin to the ideas set forth in the Monroe Doctrine, the Gettysburg Address, the Truman Doctrine, JFK's speech about the city upon a hill, Reagan, Barack Obama, all of these characters who are just using the, the mythology of American exceptionalism to justify so many things because the U.S. sees itself as a chosen one. What do you guys kind of think about that? I think it's a fascinating um, topic to dive into. First of all, I just want to say thank you, Vaughn. Um, as always, your your history lessons are to the point, but also really engaging. And that was uh, no different. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> uh, secondly, yeah, uh, as someone, I keep harking back to this, so apologies, but you know, I, I come in into Star Wars, I guess, from a different viewpoint from you two and maybe from some of our audience in that I'm not as connected to some of the mythology and just even my own viewpoint of Star Wars is maybe a bit more um, centrally focused on the original trilogy rather than how the prequels tie into that and for myself when you're talking about someone like Anakin Skywalker um, there's almost a part of my brain which is always kind of fully aware that there's a retcon element to it, that there's, uh, that, you know, 
the Darth Vader that we see originally isn't maybe necessarily tied in with the mythology that is then built upon uh, in subsequent films. As to how that ties in with American exceptionalism and this idea of America being sort of, or America either becoming or self-proclaiming itself to be a, a chosen chosen country and the way that Anakin Skywalker is constantly told he is the chosen one. I think that's a fascinating topic. Um, I don't think I really think of Anakin Skywalker. I haven't really thought specifically about Anakin Skywalker tied into this idea of America as such, but we've talked before about how uh, World War II and Vietnam specifically are so tied in with the original Star Wars trilogy and how um, American politics in general is tied into much of what happens in Star Wars and you look at what happens in, in the prequels and um, what sort of the time that George Lucas was, was writing about then um, and the, the kind of rise of the parliamentary power as, as it were uh, during uh, during the 90s and these uh, these conservative the, the power of, of Newt Gingrich and that kind of thing so I think it's a, it's a really um, I think a fertile ground to kind of walk in um, with regards to um, what you can take into Star Wars f- with this mythology I suppose the one question I would have is in Star Wars at least again what, what I've seen is there's a lot of other people shouting at Anakin that he's the chosen one or people proclaiming that he's the chosen one. Whereas in what we're talking about with America, there's a lot of self, um, um, self-proclaiming self of America as the, the chosen one. Now, obviously, that's different because, you know, it's a single character versus a whole country. Um, but I, what one question I was going to have for you was, how do you think, is there a, a direct tie-in with America proclaiming itself to be the chosen one and how that would tie in with say how Anakin Skywalker can it sees himself as, as well as other people constantly telling him he's chosen right I, I think that's a great point and a great question um because because you're right it is it is Obi-Wan yelling you were the chosen one you were supposed to bring balance to the force um but I do think Anakin feels a lot of those things, maybe not with the same language of the chosen one, but he does feel the pressures of thinking that he is the only one who can do anything. He he puts the pressure on himself to save his mom, right? And he puts the pressure on himself to save Padme and he'll go to any length to save her because he failed with his mom. And I think that's that's the same kind of mentality as the U.S., proclaiming itself to be so exceptional and be the savior of the world that it it falls down to us and if we fail then everything fails kind of thing right mm-hmm. so yeah i don't i don't think anakin it's is using the the language himself but mm-hmm. i i do think that he falls kind of pressure to this this idea that he is exceptional that he knows that he is the best pilot and he knows that he is an incredible Jedi and that he is so in touch with the force and he's aware of his powers and puts the onus on himself to, 
to use them for good and ultimately buckles under that pressure and becomes deranged and gives that speech about peace, freedom, and justice and security. Um, how he and Padme can overthrow the emperor. And it's like Steele, Steele says this quite frequently that it's that speech is kind of the ramblings of a deranged individual, of kind of a madman that he's losing touch with reality. And I think it's because he's buckling to this pressure of exceptionalism. Mm. Um, and I also, I think, I think what you said about World War II is, is a good point that there's, there's a lot of um, kind of instinct to map the prequels onto the Gulf War conflict and the, the politics of the day of the nineties and the early two thousands. Um, and it's all on point commentary. Like it's, it's absolutely there. No, like best example is Newt Gingrich and Newt Gunray. Um, it's a direct kind of uh, influence there. Um, but I, I do think that if we're, as we said in the last episode with kind of historical methodology here, I'm not, I'm not saying it, that the world world war two was a direct influence on Star Wars, but it is something that's evoked for me. Um, Absolutely. And um, these, these things, you know, are never a one-to-one correlation with regards to, you know, the journey of a character in a fictional film or, or, or comic book or whatever compared to real life events. Cause obviously we know that that's not how, not how reality works. I, th- I think you could absolutely map a number of different things on in different directions. I mean, one even on a very simplistic view would be you could take how maybe America saw itself and how maybe some of the world saw America, say, during World War II and how it was able to d- defeat the Nazis and how it was able to sort of play its part in, in liberating some of the evil that was going on in Europe during that time. And then by the 70s, the the kind of America's fall within greater um, global um, society with regards to Vietnam and Cambodia and that kind of thing. And, you know, if you wanted to, you you could be very much inclined to make a a parallel between like the the fall of Darth Vader, for instance, and, um, you know, the sort of America as it was in, in 44 compared to as it was in, you know, 77 or whatever year you want to pick. Um, you, you could you could you could see that decline uh, and that that um, that that um, America was no longer um, maybe the promise it once was and obviously we see that because Star Wars came out um, just as you know Vietnam was still going on and as as America was very much trying to figure out its place in the world and I think what's interesting is that. Or one of the things that, that you can read into this is that it, it, it's interesting that the start original Star Wars trilogy came about at a time where America was very much dealing with its own conscience with regards to it, its place in sort of both at home and in its, its wider place in uh, world society. And as I say, you know, you, you have Vietnam and you have um, this, well, um, it seems that every decade or so, there's a proclamation made that America has lost its innocence, and we've we've had that kind of constantly throughout the last fifty years, uh, be that Vietnam or, or be that nine eleven or be that whatever it is. But I, I do think when you when you sort of study where America was um, as a, on a sort of psychological level, um, there was a sort of psyche difference between how America saw itself in the late seventies when Star Wars was coming out compared to 
um, maybe how America saw itself in the world in, in the 40s. And um, it, it, it's interesting that when Star Wars then returns in the prequels, it's in a post-Reagan era, whereas everything up to that point in Star Wars had been a pre-Reagan era. And as we, Ron and I have talked about in our, our other podcast, um, we do very much see Ronald Reagan as kind of the one of the, the kind of key turning points of, of American history and as someone who, whose presidency has kind of run on continuously after after his 1980 election. Sorry, I've kind of talked for, for quite a long time. Do you have, do you guys have anything more to add around this? Um, so I had a couple of things because I was uh, I was taking a couple of notes uh, while Vaughn talking. But um, for those less knowledgeable in the room, I'm I don't know who Newt Gingrich is and the connection to Newt Gunray. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but I'm not sure who that person is. So Vaughn could explain. Yeah. So Newt Gingrich um, and Simon, you might help me out with this. Mm-hmm. He's a right wing commentator. I want to say. Yeah. I mean, he. Is that, a, is that enough to kind of encapsulate Newt Gingrich? Um, he had a lot of influence on the Republicans yeah. in the 90s former, and 2000s. Former Speaker of the House. I mean, he was, he kind of came along um, specifically around um, the kind of late 80s and early 90s in kind of more um, American sort of conscience. Um, and he... He was kind of seen as a uh, almost the champion against um, Bill Clinton in, in a way um, yeah. in in the nineties, and there was a time um, when so basically Clinton won won his election in, in ninety two um, against George Bush, but then the uh, midterm elections came in ninety four, and the Republicans kind of cleaned house and. Uh, won that election and uh, I think uh, yeah he was named time man of the year and he he was seen as someone who kind of took away um some dominance of the, of the democratic party within um like congressional houses and, and that kind of stuff so he, he was basically someone who was able to um move the Bill Clinton further right I think it was yeah think you could say he was the champion of new democrats hmm. um of the idea that that liberals would move further right to meet republicans where they were hmm. because they weren't going to um the republicans weren't moving so liberals <laughs> just should and democrats did <laughs> um, and that's why we have centrists today like joe biden as our president um who also personally was one of the champions of new democratic policies mm-hmm. throughout the 90s um and newt gungrich newt gungrich no <laughs> newt gingrich <laughs> is um he was really the driving kind of influence for that uh and he survived on as a commentator for republican politics and became the kind of spokesperson for quote-unquote republican ideology which that's a whole question as to whether they have one um but yeah that's who he is and that like leading on from our conversation on the last episode of the jedi as new democrats as liberals who are kind of centrist figures in the prequels um that kind of influence from newt gingrich was 
you can you can see it in the prequels if that makes sense yeah there's a, a line here in, in something i mean which says uh, political scientists have credited gingrich with playing a key role in undermining the democratic norms in the united states yeah and hasting uh hastening political polariz- polarization and partisanship so um i think that kind of nicely ties in with who he is and the divisions he brought within uh, america and how he was able to shift uh, certain mindsets uh, further to the right. So in the same way that um, Newt Gunray was used by Palpatine to push himself forward in his political gain. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, so what I, what I, I made a few notes. Um, the, uh, the concept of an empire of liberty is an interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. It's almost a contradiction in itself, just in the name. The idea of uh, an empire, imperialism, leading to liberty. It's, uh, it's a line itself. Mm-hmm. And I really like that this is another, I feel like I'm going to bring this episode in every single podcast at this point, but um in episode seven of season two of The Mandalorian, where you spend some time with an Imperial officer who honestly believes that the Empire were bringing freedom and order to the galaxy and believing that they were the chosen ones and they and the Empire itself is the way forward in that way is uh, kind of similar. Um, and of course, it goes back to the idea of an empire of liberty bringing peace, freedom, justice, Anakin, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very easy for a group, a large group, believing that they are spreading liberty, turning to imperialism quite quickly. And I think that's the difference between the Republic and the Empire, um, is that the Republic, at least uh, at face value, they the Republic doesn't seem to want to be somewhere that it isn't wanted. Like there are times in Clone Wars where you see that the Republic makes promises to leave places where it's not wanted. And um, there are times when the Republic ends up being part of a planet that it didn't, that they didn't want to be. And that can lead to imperialism Mm -hmm. to the point where Ryloth, for example, um, where the Republic promised to leave once it was secure, they never deemed Ryloth secure. And therefore when the empire came around, they were already there. Um, Manifest destiny seems like an excuse. Um, It is. It is. Yeah. Yep. Um, I like the idea of, I like the idea of it being used as an excuse to bring other settlements into this empire of liberty, i.e. bringing more people into the empire, whether they like it or not. Imperialism. Um, there's, there's something interesting on that, actually, that, um, as, as I mentioned with the Monroe Doctrine, uh, this, this idea of empire of liberty and everything you just said is completely spot on. Um, but the Monroe Doctrine was the the State of the Union address from James Monroe, in which he said that um, it was a warning to European countries that 
like you are not to colonize anyone further. Like we'll put up with the colonies you have now, but colon uh, colonization and imperialism end now was what the Monroe Doctrine said. And if you are familiar with American history, you know that we didn't stick to that. Um, the U.S. has imperialized many places and is still occupying places. Um, the annexation of Texas it was an imperialist endeavor. The annexation of Hawaii and Alaska. Uh, any expansion of the U.S. is an expansion of the American empire. And we don't use those terms. We don't use imperialism or empire largely to describe what the U.S. is doing or to describe the U.S. at all. But I would contend that the U.S. is an empire of sorts. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. Manifest Destiny is the excuse that we give to break the Monroe Doctrine, that we're allowed to do it because we have divine right. I was just going to say, um, Pearl Harbor was in Hawaii, yes? Mm-hmm. That was a an area of that was an area of the world that was colonized by the states. Yes. Yes. So even the reason to go into the Second World War was <laughs> an attack of a piece of America's empire. Excellent not, point. Not on the homeland itself. Yes. Um, and the last things I was going to say was um, I don't believe this is a this is. Uh, maybe a critique of how the prequels are written, but you never see Anakin believing he's the chosen one mm. and you never see him. Um, you never see him accepting that. You never see him dealing with the pressures of being the chosen one. You see him dealing with the pressures of being a Jedi and he seems to complain about Obi-Wan a lot, but you never see him <laughs> buckling under the weight of everyone believing he's the chosen one and that he has to amount to this brilliance and um it's just interesting. Uh, the thing that comes into my head is um, there's a line in one of the Harry Potter films. It's number six, a Half-Blood Prince, where there's a character that uh, is really into Harry. And uh, Hermione says, uh, she only wants to go out with you because she thinks you're the chosen one. And he goes, but I am the chosen one. And then she hits him <laughs> over the head. Mm. And you never have that moment of cockiness with Anakin, actually, because we just watched... Um, I just watched uh, Mortis and uh, I know Simon, you just recently watched it as well. Um, I haven't watched it in years, so I rewatched it in preparation. And um, as soon as, as soon as the father says to Anakin that he's the chosen one, Anakin immediately belittles that and says, that's just a myth. It's not, it's just a myth. Um, Of course, the Anakin, the Clone Wars is written a little differently to the one in the prequel trilogy, but um, they do a great job of making that seem like the same. And um, I believe that the people that believe that they are exceptional, um, the people that come to mind in the Star Wars universe are the Empire, as I previously mentioned, and also the Jedi. Mm. And they believe that they have to be a part of the war because otherwise, who else will do it? And they won't do it the right way. And uh, they, they, they go along with that to the point that when in the Clone Wars, they discover that the entire clone army was created by their enemies. They, they decide that they're too far gone now to do anything about it. And that's a huge decision that leads to their downfall because the clones turn on them and they knew about it and they ignored it. Uh, and the last thing I was going to say was you mentioned the sphere of influence. And I went, I thought to myself, hang on, I've, heard that before in a Star Wars context and it's the name of an episode of Clone Wars 
and it's the one where um, the George Lucas character, um, the senator from the planet Pantora, mm. um, has his uh, children kidnapped and he has to save them with the help of Ahsoka. Um, the Trade Federation are going to try and occupy Pandora and they're using his children as leverage. And they totally, they totally big up George Lucas like crazy. He's a, he's an ass kicking, uh, shooty shooty senator in that. It's, uh, it's it's pretty cool, but also kind of pandering. But who cares? Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's the end of my notes for that. I uh, I just remembered Sphere of Influence, and I was like, that's the name of a Clone Wars episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So after that discussion. What do you guys think um, on my theory? Do you buy into it? Yeah or nay? On American exceptionalism and the kind of prophecy? Um, Simon and Steele, I want to hear you guys. Yay or nay? Does it hold up? Um, And any of our listeners, please reach out on Twitter at Joy of Star Wars and let us know what you think about this theory. So Simon, yay or nay? American exceptionalism and the chosen one. Uh, Sorry, do you mean as as it applies to Star Wars or as it applies in general? Yeah. Uh, as it applies to Star Wars, yeah, sure, why not? All right, Steel. Um, so, yay, but um, yay, but nuance. Yay, That's fair. Yay, but nay. Um, <laughs> yay, but but. Um, I I feel like its application towards Anakin in the same in the same vein as everything to do with American history isn't isn't quite as comparable as a comparison to the way that the empire see themselves and the way that um, the Jedi see themselves. And I feel like as a large group mentality, the idea of American exceptionalism can be seen in the empire, which is a chilling thought Mm -hmm. and the Jedi in the same way. And the idea that uh, the Jedi's uh, hubris and uh, their lack of their lack of action because of an image they had to maintain. It's also pretty scary, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. All right, excellent counterpoint. Yeah. I'm with um, you. While I don't disagree with you at all, there still that was the worst wor- one word answer I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I got words for days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, did we want to? sort of slightly move on but keep it related to where we were is it is it time to 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 discuss my homework as it were yes it is simon so we had simon watch the uh mortis arc from clone wars season three a little disclaimer this was the first look into clone wars simon has had i believe and that's a bit of a weird one to jump into i'm not gonna lie yeah Uh, I remember when me and Vaughn were discussing it, we uh, I I was saying maybe we should get him to watch a couple of the a couple of the episodes that lead into it, that <laughs> lead into the characters and the vibe of it a little more. And Vaughn was like, "No, this is perfect. Absolutely not. I want to hear his fresh take." So Simon, what's your fresh take? Let's get weird. Okay, so in order for me to give my reaction to the story, I should probably just give sort of general reaction to the show first because I had not seen the show before. But I was obviously aware of some of the characters in it. Uh, first of all, I really liked the Clone Wars episodes. I thought they were really good. Um, I thought the fact that the episodes are really short, I think they're about 25 minutes long, I think that really helps the show because 
if it had been bogged down for 48 minutes and we had to kind of spend time sort of navel gazing, I think I think it would have lost some of the impact. And I think the fact that it was reduced to 25 minutes, I think really helped the episodes. So that's the first point. Second point was, it was interesting seeing Star Wars through an episodic lens, which I'd never mm. seen before. Um, so um, the films themselves are, you know, two hours of, of, of joy. And then the even the TV series, uh, the sort of live action ones, the ones I've been watching, um, are a bit more um, closer to um, so how television and how... Um, prestige television is these days where you have sort of six to eight episodes and you, you tell a story and you kind of get out. Whereas I kind of get the feeling that even though these three episodes were kind of self-contained within what they were doing, you kind of could get a, a more episodic um, feel to, to Star Wars and you could kind of stretch out how you introduce characters and how you have themes of characters, which I found quite interesting, which actually tied into one of my first reactions to watching the first episode of the, the three, which was, it was basically a Star Trek episode uh, and it very much followed Star Trek um, kind of very well-worn um, approach, which is there's a mysterious signal coming from a, you know, a beacon from a, a ship or, you know, a state a space station or a planet or whatever it might be. And our, you know, intrepid adventurers go there and they find out what works coming from and upon getting there they they discover this unusual great force which they can't initially sort of deal with and then in time it sort of plays out that there's a, a personal connection to it so just on the kind of um st- structure level that was interesting watching star wars through a star trek lens and then the, the second episode was kind of a combination of, of things where it, it had more of a i think i described it as having sort of um superhero style split fights between uh, two different um two different sets of characters and then also bringing in a uh, latter day season of uh, of lost to do with some of the mythology around um sort of um good and bad and sort of a, a twinned a twinned existence on a on a, a separate island or in this case a, a planet and then the third episode kind of um sort of that all together and deals with it i found it so that, that's just kind of the background context of, of what the actual um, episodes were for me to experience. As far as the, the content was concerned, I found it interesting because it played even further into this idea of what the force is. And for myself, who hasn't sort of jumped into the deep end of Star Wars the way you guys have, I I try my very best to keep the force in mind as it was in the original trilogy, where it is just this ethereal thing which you can't really touch or measure or get to grips with. And then obviously in the prequels, we start having, you know, number counts. And then by the point we've got to here, we've got um, literal um, representations of the good, uh, the light side and the dark side. So that wasn't something I was I was expecting to, to, to see such a um, representation in that way, and then to have it have it play out the way it did, um, yeah, it was it it was a really interesting watch to to bring this kind of mythology 
in more of a tangible way to the Force and Star Wars. And again, I, I don't know if I would have enjoyed that story if it had been played out, say, in a film. But in short 25-minute segments, I think it worked really well and I found it an interesting story. Um, but it does make me kind of question what else they would do in, in a show like this, which I haven't watched um, beyond these three episodes. And are there other aspects to Star Wars where they sort of throw in um, characters into a almost, almost like a Star Trek style sort of mini story? And then they sort of, in the end, they sort of tie things up. They have to use <laughs> basically sort of touching the Anakin on the head to give him amnesia in order to tie everything back up in in um in the star star wars timeline um so i really enjoyed it i thought it was really sort of fun show and i like some of the concepts and then it did sort of leave me questioning how a show like this has to perform certain sort of um bendy maneuvers in order to make it fit back into the canon afterwards it almost felt like a pocket universe this sort of sprouted right. out for a minute and then was brought back and where it was like, oh, here's this thing. Okay, but then we've got to reverse it back into the canon. So um, there's a, a lot to, to kind of go from that. And then the, the la one last thing, which was the, um, I re really enjoyed the uh, voiceover intro that they do for the episodes, which, yes. which t very much ties it into this sort of 1950s serialized um, mm -hmm. Uh, Flash Gordon style adventure, which obviously you know with George Lucas's influences from from that era, uh, I, I, again something that's a bit different to uh, how I normally think of Star Wars, um, as far as just the actual presentation on screen rather than anything else. So yeah, uh, some really nice touches, but um, I I I was left with a few questions outside of my enjoyment of it. Right. Well, I'm I'm happy that you enjoyed it. Um, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the Mortis arc, um, it is a three-episode arc in the middle of season three, or well, three quarters of the way through season three, um, in which, as you say, they uh, Anakin, Obi Wan, and Ahsoka are responding to kind of a beacon signal, um, and they're brought into this almost pocket reality where there are these manifestations of the force and there's the father who is keeping all of the force in the universe in balance. And he has the son and the daughter who are the dark and light sides respectively. Um, and the father has brought Anakin there because he is the chosen one. Um, and he is said to be the one who can bring balance to the light and dark sides of the force and Anakin, through this arc, learns about uh, himself as the, the Chosen One. He is forced to um, control the son and the daughter when the, the father kind of allows the son and the daughter to um, attack Obi-Wan and Ahsoka and tells Anakin to choose. And Anakin doesn't. He, he just brings both of them to their knees and they literally bow to him. Um, and it's, it's a storyline that, like you say, Simon, really does um, some maneuvering to explain things from the prequels and make it make sense with the original trilogy. And Anakin even has a, a kind of um, flash forward 
to see his future as Darth Vader. And ultimately, because it's you can't just do that in the middle of Star Wars and have it still make sense. It's really kind of for the fans to explain how things work and they wipe everyone's mind by the end of this, this episode arc. Um, it's one of my favorites in Clone Wars. I think it's really wonderful and extremely beautiful, um, just how it's, it's uh, drawn and everything. But yeah, I, I agree. It's a really interesting representation of the Force. And they, they say within that that um, your kind of human understanding of the force is not the force. Like the force is, is everything and you've put it into terms that you understand, but you'll never truly understand how big and vast and influential the force is in every bit of nature across the universe. Um, so I, I just, I really like that arc and I'm happy that you enjoyed it. And I'm happy you enjoyed yeah. the Clone Wars. Absolutely. I, th- I thought it was good. And we, very quickly touch upon the uh, um, sort of chosen one narrative within that in a second. Just one question I had kind of coming out of it, which I didn't fully understand, was how tied this father, daughter, son was to like this trilogy of people, how they were actually, how were they actually tied to the the wider expanse of what the force is and how it was kept in balance? Because one of the, plots within the trilogy of episodes is this idea of if the sun gets off the planet then the 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 dark side will be in in greater power across the universe and and this kind of thing is is there is this supposed to are they just these greater beings who have some greater influence on the force is there some sort of um almost um are they tied to an, is almost closer to an origin story with regards to how the force is out there in the universe or it, it, do you have any answers around that type of thing or is that kind of left open for, for fans to, to kind of think about themselves? I think how much that contributes to the trilogies is completely up to you hmm. because I it's easy to see Mortis as its own separate plane of reality where the battle between the light and the dark is happening in a different way. But at the same time, and a question that just popped to me while you guys were talking was Anakin's brought to the planet because the chosen one can keep the light and the dark at bay because the father is dying. And the question is, why is the father dying? Is he dying because he's old? Because he's a being of, it seems like he's a being that operates on different rules mm-hmm. and perhaps perhaps age isn't one of them. And there's a possibility that perhaps he is dying because he is the balance and the balance is dying. I mean, before the Clone Wars, the Jedi were great in number and there were hundreds of them. And by the end of the Clone Wars, they're all gone and it's about Palpatine's rise to power. And does the the battle between the light and the dark in the main world of Star Wars affect the battle of light and dark in Mortis? Is the father dying because the light and the dark is in such conflict now? 
that he can no longer keep balance himself. And there's also the question of when you look at when you look at Anakin's actions in the original trilogy, what is balance? Does he bring balance by destroying the Emperor? Because it just mm. seems like that's putting the Jedi back as the more influential, like the light side is the more influential side of the force at that point. Is the dark side supposed to be just nature? Like in an ideal world, mm -hmm. is the dark side just the dark side of nature, the things that general life brings, the death and decay that comes with everyday life? Or should there be people that believe in the dark side as well as people who believe in the light? Or should both sides accept it and become one? The... Uh, uh, another thing that you were saying, you mentioned it being like an episode of Star Trek. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't seen it. I've only watched um, in detailed reviews. But I believe Star Trek The Motion Picture is about them finding, discovering something which could be a deity. Yeah, the, 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 there's, a, there's one where they, uh, one of the, the uh, original Star Trek films where they, they discover something which they could be conceived as being God, essentially. Yeah, I believe so. It just reminded me, just reminded me of that. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is something that kind of pops up. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I mean, I've, I've watched some of the films and I've seen, I think I've seen all the episodes of the original series and but I'm, I'm more actually into the next generation um, of, of Star Trek. That's just happened to happen to be the one that I kind of fell into. And from the episodes I've seen of that and of the original series and of other things here and there, the kind of concept of, of what is a what is a god and what is perceived to be um, of a higher power is something that's kind of constantly dealt with. And um, they're kind of constantly having to, sometimes it's the Star Trek characters who come across something which is far more powerful and they kind of can't fully comprehend it. And other times it's actually them coming across um, far less advanced civilizations who treat them as gods as a result of their technology. Um, obviously, in Star Trek, in Star Wars, it's more of an even field as far as things are concerned. You don't, at least from what I gather, you, you don't really have the kind of first contact style um, um, sort of universe uh, or galaxy that's out there where, you know, <laughs> this is the first time a this particular planet has come across an alien or has come across a spaceship. Everyone's kind of, it's kind of old hat. It's well-versed that, um, you know, you are meeting people and meeting creatures from, from other planets kind of every day of the week. Whereas in, in Star Trek, one of the main points is how do, how do different um, species, how do different uh, creatures and people, how do they get along when they're introduced to things that are beyond their comprehension, which is, far less of a thing in star wars from what i can gather yeah that's an interesting way of seeing it um you'll get a lot more of that um that episodic feel from watching the clone wars and i'm very excited for you to see it because there's a lot of that um there's a lot of that this is happening with these particular people and that's what all of this is about and then when it's over it's over and it was just a greater piece of the clone wars mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a very good way of digesting Star Wars. I also, 
there's a couple of things that you said that I wanted to um, mention. One, the great thing about Clone Wars is that despite the fact it aired on Cartoon Network, it has the balls to end episodes on a downer and not just episodes one and two of that story arc, but the finale of that story arc, it ends on an absolute downer. I mean, episode two ends with the daughter dying and the father being like, I don't know what's going to happen now, honestly. And Mm -hmm. the third episode ends with everyone on that planet being dead and they just having to leave. Oh, spoilers, by the way. Um, (laughs) And they just have to leave. And um, yeah, that happens a lot in Clone Wars. They really have, they really have the, um, dedication to the storytelling to not always have the heroes win. And I really appreciate that because it makes for some really good storytelling. Um, also, I, after rewatching it now, I realized that Anakin forgot seeing the future, but when they come out of the, when they come out of Mortis and they're picked up by the, the, uh, the clone, the clone ship, they do know, they do remember exactly what happened because uh, Anakin says, you wouldn't believe us if we told you. And because Anakin, because Anakin has forgotten everything that, everything that transpired in his future and the weight that that holds, everything that was left over could be seen as a weird little excursion. Mm. And they could talk about it later and be like, what was that? What, what happened? And because, because Anakin lost those memories of the future and everything that he would become to bring balance, um, that can be seen in a less, a less intense way because yes, everyone on that planet dies, but a lot of characters die in the clone wars and it's, it's nothing new. So without the knowledge of, without the knowledge of everything making making it deeper within what Anakin's going to do, um, it can be seen as less important than it is. And that's a that's quite a tragedy in itself, the idea that they went to this place, they learned so much, and they only took away a small amount because the rest was lost for the preservation of balance that would come in the timeline later. And um, the uh, the other thing was you mentioned um, you mentioned going on the force from the original trilogy and not not thinking about um, the way that the way that the Jedi talk about the force in the prequels with uh, midichlorians and uh, all of the scientific aspect of it. But I've sort of I didn't like that either for a while, and then after a while, trying to add that to a contribution of why the Jedi fell and why the, the order was destroyed. It's almost trying to make it scientific and trying to make it, trying to read who's more powerful in the force just by their genetics is almost a bastardization of what the force is. Mm. And the Jedi are just actively doing that on the daily. And um, I think that can lead to well, exactly what happens with uh, the chosen one prophecy being either completely mistaken in Anakin or they believe it will bring something different where they don't all die. 
So that, that's an interesting point and kind of leads me to one question I did have for you guys, um, which was we've talked a lot about this chosen one narrative within Star Wars and what's been talked about and what we talk, what was talked about in the, the trilogy of episodes there with Anakin as this chosen one, as, as Ewan McGregor shouted him uh, as well. But from, I can say, my perspective, which is much more tied in with the original trilogy, you could tie in Luke Skywalker more as the chosen one in that he is kind of plucked from nothing and sort of becomes the galaxy's defender against evil and um, ultimately becomes the, this, this, this great Jedi in himself. And I was just wondering, what, what are your thoughts on how Star Wars kind of squares this idea of multiple chosen ones? Because we get this again with Rey in the... Um, sequels as well and even if um, Anakin is more chosen than the other ones to one degree or another or at least he's had more media content that has described him as such how do you think that sort of ties in with the fact that we've had three trilogies and essentially each time there's been a chosen one character well I think it shows the idea of the chosen one as a belief more than a statement. Um, mm-hmm. Because Luke Luke being seen as the chosen one is only really referenced outside of media I've seen, which I can't speak for, but in Rebels, when uh, Obi-Wan and Darth Maul have a last scene together and Maul asks what he's protecting and is it the chosen one? And Obi-Wan says he is. And that's just the belief of one man. And uh, it actually reminded me a little bit of how deeply Morpheus believes in Neo in the Matrix that just uh, yeah, absolutely. popped into my brain. But um, with Anakin, with Anakin, is he the chosen one? Not necessarily, because obviously we do have these sequels. And in the last one, they brought Palpatine back. Oh, somehow. Somehow, Palpatine returned. Um, one that fucks <laughs> <laughs> hot palpatine that fucks um the the thing that i i like with ray at least in the first two films before they ruined it um is she's not the chosen one mm-hmm. she's she is just nothing. there yeah and she is nobody mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be somebody special to be someone special and then they went back on it and Mm. it makes me sad that that idea actually of not having to be someone special to be someone special is is something that i i really like and it it definitely does come through with ray um in the first two films for sure but it's also like a deeply american thing too isn't it that any common man the, the mm-hmm. American common man uh, ideology and American dream um, are closely linked with the idea of American exceptionalism, that every American is exceptional and every American can achieve this, this central dream of um, being well off and middle class. And specifically, I'm talking about the concept of the American dream and in the post-war period largely the the whole kind of conception of the 1950s of the nuclear family the husband wife two and a half kids picket fence all of that um 
It's it's a deeply American traditional idea and uh, American traditional value to be the 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 exceptional out of the common, um, and it's something that we see in a lot of cinema, especially kind of uh, Frank Capra's populist cinema. Um, we see it in literature about the U.S. with um, I believe it's a book on the common man from 1923 by a historian sociologist, proto sociologist um, named fish. Um, we, we get this, this trope of the common man who can be special by not being special. Um, and I, I mean, this is going to be a common theme on this podcast, but I think it's really kind of heartbreaking and does a massive disservice that Rise of Skywalker really abandoned this idea um, that Ray could be someone exceptional by being no one. Um, so I, I think that that does kind of also come into this whole idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I mentioned, I think on previous podcasts uh maybe otherwise it was just in private when i was talking with Vaughn about this was one of the things that i really enjoyed about um the first uh, couple of episodes of the, the the sequel films was this idea that she that ray came from from no one and that, that was so important i think in episode eight was this this concept that um we were moving beyond this sort of family unit and that someone could come in from completely outside of this and be a, a central figure in, in the story. And uh, as I keep banging on about this episode eight has its problems in, in my opinion, but I think it works very well in, in some places. And most of all, I think it works well with the little boy with the, the broom um, at, the, at the end and sort of expanding upon what star Wars is. And for me, what, what, episode nine is just i don't know if disaster is the right word but it's so sad to see that it it just kind of collapsed in on itself and became a a story of of kind of to land a plane that was um the wrong plane in my opinion um and uh yeah I, i think it definitely dampened dampened my interest in star wars a bit after watching after watching episode nine, I have to say. Um, we are coming up to about an hour and 20 now on the uh, episode. Um, is there anything else we'd like to add on this um, before we, we kind of finish the game and, and close up for today? Yeah, I had um, I had a couple of things. Um, one, um, you mentioned Broom Boy, and I adore that. That that's how the story ends, with someone being inspired by the story of Luke, and yep. because he is a force sensitive child, he's equipped in the way, and he's just anyone. And because of his experience with the Resistance and the story of Luke, he is he's now a true believer, and I love that. And also Broom Boy represents all of us who love Star Wars, any of us who've picked up a broom and thought of it as a lightsaber. I've done that a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that came into my brain when um, Vaughn was saying about um, the exceptional, anyone can be exceptional in, uh, in an American 
in American belief. Uh, it reminded me of a line from um, The Shape of Water when um, Strickland, uh, played by Michael Shannon, who is very much the idea of the American man in that film, um, he asks the general when the general is, uh, when he's made a mistake and he's asking the general to forgive him. He says, when is a man done uh, proving himself a good man, a decent man? And uh, General Hoyt says, decent? A man has the decency not to fuck up. That's one thing. That is real decent of him. The other kind of decency, it doesn't really matter. We sell it, sure, but it's an export. And we sell it because we don't use it. Hmm. And it just it just reminded me of that the idea of the uh, the idea of the exceptional individual is is a myth. It's a it's an export. It's it's something that that the higher ups make people believe. Mm. It's not real. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, also, when we were talking earlier about this idea that um, Ray is someone who, who essentially comes from from nothing but is is able to to be the central figure made me think is star wars actually just space rocky um (laughs) oh my god (laughs) mull on that one um god wait does that make kylo ren adrian (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah so you can think yep um yeah, so you, all we need now That's is uh, mm. oh, maybe the Cantina band could do a performance of Living in America. That would be great. Um, right. Shall we? Um, sorry, Vaughn, was there anything you wanted to, to add on the, the, the Chosen One narrative before we, we uh, close up on that? Um, no, I think, I think I'm good. I think you both made some really great points. Um, and I'm, I'm considering my stance on it. So thank you both for your, your input on it. Cool. Right. Um, so as we did in the last episode, I put together a little game and I've not told the guys what it is. Um, so this is um, thanks to a website called popularmechanics.com. Uh, um, so uh, all information is provided from them. And if anything's wrong, blame them, not me. So this is minor Star Wars characters and which films they appeared in. So ready. Okay. So all this should be canon because this is these are from the films. Right. So, um, I'm going to read out a character name or do my very best to trip over the words, and then uh, you guys can can guess. So either I can tell you how many films they are in, and then you can have a guess at them, or we can just go with um, me saying the name and not giving you any hint on on how many films they're in. Um, I'll leave it up to you guys. First one is one of my favorites, which is Gonk the Power Droid. He should be in all of them. He is <laughs> our god. My immediate thought was all of them, but I know he's not in all of them. He's definitely in episode four because mm-hmm. he's in the Sandcrawler. Yeah. Um, the- you might not see him in the special edition because they screwed up the uh, shading. Blurred it all out. It's pretty horrendous. But uh, okay, so what's the answer, Serge? How many? How many? How many? Which one should we go with? Uh, Four. Okay, it's. I think it's just the original trilogy: A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. 
Yeah. Also, okay. my favorite thing about the gonk droid is in Lego Star Wars, uh, the complete saga and the, the two that came before it, uh, you can play as the gonk droid. He can't jump. He can't attack. He can't do anything <laughs> apart from walk, but he is immortal. <laughs> he gets hit. He falls over onto his back and kicks his little legs around a bit <laughs> and then gets right back up. God, are you just are like, you just describing Vaughn there with that description? Honestly, uh, <laughs> right. Kicks her legs around. <laughs> kicks her legs around like a little turtle. Um, the next one, and I apologize way too much. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one, I apologize for how I pronounce these things because I, I I really don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, Yarel Poof. I know this one. Okay, Vaughn, do you know who Yarel Poof is? No. Sounds like a slur though. <laughs> <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but Yarel Poof is very famous for taking the slur and owning it. Oh. Yeah. It's the... uh, he's he's a strong man. No. Um Yarel Poof is a member of the Jedi Council in The Phantom Menace and Correct. he's got a big long neck that waves the around. The neck guy. Oh, that guy. My favorite yeah. thing is in the uh, the Robot Chicken Star Wars. Um, he's basically asking all the questions that the audience did. And um, when Mace Windu and Yoda are talking, they say about, we, we will let them know about the will of the council. And he goes, oh, it's, so it's a council now? It's not just the two of you? <laughs> what about you, dog face? Did you know it was a council? Does anyone realize that I'm talking? <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, right. Next one is Plo Koon. Oh, Cone, uh-huh. he gets owned in Revenge of the Sith, and it's totally fucking heartbreaking because he's a badass in Clone Wars. You're gonna fall in love with him. Mm-hmm. I was I gonna say he, he's, he's such an empathetic he, daddy. God, I love him so much. I love he's him. down here as Attack of the Clones in Revenge of the Sith. So well, yeah, 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 he gets absolutely owned by Palpatine. They no, just no, say, no, he gets shot down. No, you're thinking of Kit Fisto. Um, he oh, gets. Kit. Yeah, he gets shot down in his little his little fighter jet. Yeah, and, uh, he, he gets his little, his little tiny fighter jet, <laughs> and he gets uh, great. That's on the podcast now. Popularmechanics.com describe him as just the most badass of all the set dressing Jedi in the prequels. Correct, he really is. God, I love him so much. I can't believe I well, I can believe I mistook him for Kit Fisto because I also have a massive crush on Kit Fisto. <laughs> also, right, fucking babe. <laughs> squids and weird masked men oh love it yep that's oh, that's fun fact fun fact about plo Koon. um in the mandalorian season two when uh spoilers when uh luke comes to save the day at the end they went mm. into such depths to hide that it was luke coming to save the day that all of the uh they told all of the crew and all of the um concept art is of plo Koon coming to save the day which I would have loved. Give us the extended cut of that. Right. Uh, next, next character is Dak Ralter. I know Dak. He, he feels like he can take on the entire empire himself. He, he, he does. Correct. Well he done. He does. He's Luke's, uh, he's Luke's co-pilot oh, in the yeah. Snowspeeder. He gets absolutely wrecked and then stepped on. Mm. Yep. Empire Strikes Back and that's all he gets. Uh, this one, um, let's see if you recognize this name. You, you recognize the photo, but let's see if you recognize the name. Lore Santeca. 
It's Max von Sydow. Yes, correct. It's um, I've got a Lego minifigure of him. Well done, uh, Force Awakens. He he yep. doesn't last long. No, he doesn't. Um, the meme the, there was a meme of him saying uh, this will begin to make things right, which uh, which uh, spread like wildfire. I love Max von Sydow. He's so good. He is fantastic. Right, the next one is Lobot. L O B O T. Lobot's got some dope ass headphones. He does. Yes. Uh, he's the guy in um, episode five who's um, he's got uh, he's got uh, the uh, the ear things. What's the word for it? What's the word for it? He's got prosthetic. He's got prosthetic cybernetic yeah. ear enhancements. He's the guy that's uh, Lando Calrissian's like second in command. Mm. You're the bald guy with the bald yes. guy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I would watch a whole movie about why he chose to have such a frilly uh, shirt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the next one, and again, apologies for pronunciation. Uh, ben Quadinaros. Uh, this is one for my brother. Um, ben Quadinaros is uh, the pod racer from The Phantom Menace who doesn't pass the finish line, sorry, the start line. He doesn't pass the start line because mm. his uh, pod race is too beefed up and he uh, gets real angry and hits his, uh, yes. his little monitor <laughs> screen and then the whole thing <laughs> blows up. It's great. He's, he's quite an entertaining character from the gif I'm watching now. Uh, yep. Very well done. Right. This one, uh, hopefully you should get, and not just for the entertaining uh, name, um, Max Rebel and the Jizz Whalers. Simon what now? Ma- no. <laughs> Max Rebo? Max Rebo and the Jizz Whalers. Yes. Uh, they're the, the, the band in Jabba's Palace. Mm-hmm. Is little, little piano we, playing elephant. We love yeah. Max Rebo. Max mm-hmm. Rebo is a, a, little, a little hero. He is. He's, he's the greatest jizz musician. Yes. <laughs> uh, I will say, I will hear nothing else. He, the way he, the way he makes that jizz is just, is just godlike. Mm. It's just like, and sorry, just and which film is it in? Is. Just to confirm. Which, which, again, uh, which film is, are we blessed by seeing the, the jizz whalers in from oh, the original? Um, that would be five, six, six, six. Yeah. Return, Return of the Jedi. Jedi. In Jabba's palace. That's one of the scenes that they very weirdly uh, edited in the special edition. So we get Jedi rocks instead of the original, the original song and um in the special edition we get less max rebo because the camera goes on him less than it does in the original and that is a crime that is a crime you wouldn't steal a max rebo <laughs> True. i think i you just didn't. killed simon <laughs> <laughs> right uh we've got two more to go so the next one is garadin as zavor also known as long snout. Ooh. Ooh. That sounds really familiar, but oh Garadin. Um, isn't he he's the Imperial spy from episode four? The one yep. the one that talks in his little radio and goes. Yep, correct. You're welcome well for the impression. Disney call me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next one has about a hundred letters, and if uh, still you're able to spell this correctly, I will give you my soul. So, and uh, no pressure on either of us here. Um, Paldok Draba Takat 
Sap D Recti Nick Linky T Kevev Nick Ne Sevev Lee Kek Akapau. Oh God. Um does he have a short name? <laughs> let, let me see if uh, if there's a shortened version of his name. Two seconds. Um let's see. Um known shortly as Paldok Draba Tikat. Oh Jesus Christ. Um that and one most com- most commonly known as Pal. There you go. Oh, Pal. Pal as in Pal from Rogue One. Correct. Hey, he's I've got a Lego minifigure of him. Yeah. Um, Did you know that was his full name? Uh, I actually I'd heard that he had a massive ass name. Uh, <laughs> I heard anyone uh, pronounce it and I still haven't. Um, <laughs> I um, he's the one he's the little gray guy that at one point. Yeah. He goes, ah, and he's got big open mouth. Yeah, world. he's got a big old, big old mouth, big old big boy. Yeah, he's great. Mm-hmm. I'm really, um, that's the last one, yeah. That was the last one. Um, so they did a quiz like this, and Elon Slees Bagano was not on it. That's really sad. Well, I mean, Slees Bag, you know, the, the he sells death sticks. Mm, yes, yeah. So, I mean, there were. There were, so I'm looking at it here, it's the 50 best minor characters in Star Wars. So, I, I basically just picked 10 at random. Um, and tried to pick 10, which um, a combination of ones you might know and ones you wouldn't. Um, so other ones that we could have done were the Nope Troopers, which are a personal favorite of mine. The what, sorry? Nope Troopers, as they're called here. Oh, Those no. are the, the Storm Troopers in The Force Awakens that decide that angry, angry Kylo Ren is not worth their time and they turn <laughs> back around. Oh, yeah. And they just nope right out of there. Excellent. Yep. Such a good joke. And then you've got uh, Kit Fisto, which uh, we, we talked about. Um, Love Kit Fisto. Once again, uh, podcast is the best way to um, to portray this. I feel like if it was video, then um, we'd be in danger. Uh, we also have uh, Sidon Ethano uh, from The Force Awakens as well, who didn't make the cut, although he's got a pretty spectacular head. Um, he looks like a red jellyfish. Um, oh, Nice. Uh, I don't yeah, recognize so, that one. Uh, yeah, so there the, the were other ones, I cho- but I, I just chose the, the, those 10. Um, and I thought uh, they also had um, some other characters who I wouldn't really count as being sort of minor in the... I mean, how could you include Porkins as a minor character? I don't know. Yeah, how um, dare you? The movie is about Porkins. <laughs> this Porkins, Porkins origin uh, story. Right. Um We've covered quite a lot, and we've all said the word jizz, so I think we've done pretty well for today's episode. Um, is there anything we want to uh, proclaim or um, get out there before we close up today's episode? Just listeners, always always get that jizz in your ears, you know? Just, just get it right in there, you know? Just accept the jizz. I'm sorry, guys. Just just listen to it, you know? I can't believe that I'd, the two of you, you would be the bigger issue for me here, Steel. I, I mean, <laughs> this, this is just not what I was expecting at all. A surprise, to be sure. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. Um, <laughs> right. 
Uh, Vaughn, is there anything you'd like to add to whatever the hell Steel was on about? Um, I mean, I would definitely second our audience getting some jizz in their life. So yeah, just to be clear, Vaughn is a professional historian, so um, <laughs> t- t- take her uh, recommendations um, seriously. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, good luck with your career, Vaughn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> jazz simon it's jazz you're the one it's... with a filthy mind <laughs> sure okay right um von's spiraling reputation to one side i think this has been a really good episode um thank you for for your history lesson as always von i thought that was fascinating and i'm glad we we managed to cover that and as always i'm sure we will touch upon this topic in other ways at some point in the future i'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to to this um because um th- there's always um ways you can revisit star wars and um i'm sure this won't be the only time that we'll be talking around uh, a narrative of the chosen one right well I, I guess that's the end of the episode then i've got no more minor characters and uh, you guys have got no more jokes about jizz so uh from steel from vaughn and myself simon thank you very much for listening Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks, guys. <laughs>